Chapters 63 and 64 of Omu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Omu, a narrative of adventures in the South Seas, by Herman Melville. Chapter 63. A Dance in the Valley. There were some ill-natured people, tell-tales, it seemed, in Tamai, and hence there was a deal of mystery about getting up the dance. An hour or two before midnight, Rartu entered the house, and, throwing robes of tapa over us, bade us follow at a distance behind him, and, until out of the village, hood our faces. Keenly alive to the adventure, we obeyed. At last, after taking a wide circuit, we came out upon the farthest shore of the lake. It was a wide, dewy space, lighted up by a full moon, and carpeted with a minute species of fern growing closely together. It swept right down to the water, showing the village opposite, glistening among the groves. Near the trees, on one side of the clear space, was a ruinous pile of stones, many rods in extent, upon which had formerly stood a temple of Oro. At present there was nothing but a rude hut, planted on the lowermost terrace. It seemed to have been used as a tapa hairy, or house for making the native cloth. Here we saw lights gleaming from between the bamboos and casting long, rod-like shadows upon the ground without. Voices were also heard. We went up and had a peep at the dancers who were getting ready for the ballet. They were some twenty in number, waited upon by hideous old crones who might have been duenas. Longghost proposed to send the latter packing, but Rartu said it would never do, and so they were permitted to remain. We tried to effect an entrance at the door, which was fastened, but after a noisy discussion with one of the old witches within, our guide became fidgety, and at last told us to desist, or we would spoil all. He then led us off to a distance to await the performance, as the girls, he said, did not wish to be recognized. He, furthermore, made us promise to remain where we were until all was over and the dancers had retired. We waited impatiently, and at last they came forth. They were arrayed in short tunics of white tapa, with garlands of flowers on their heads. Following them were the duenas, who remained clustering about the house while the girls advanced a few paces. And in an instant, two of them, taller than their companions, were standing side by side in the middle of a ring formed by the clasped hands of the rest. This movement was made in perfect silence. Presently the two girls join hands overhead, and crying out, Ahlu, Ahlu, wave them to and fro, upon which the ring begins to circle slowly, the dancers moving sideways, with their arms a little drooping. Soon they quicken their pace, and at last fly round and round, bosoms heaving, hair streaming, flowers dropping, and every sparkling eye circling in what seemed a line of light. Meanwhile, the pair within were passing and repassing each other incessantly. Inclining sideways, so that their long hair falls far over, they glide this way and that, one foot continually in the air, and their fingers thrown forth and twirling in the moonbeams. Ahlu, Ahlu, again cry the dance queens, and coming together in the middle of the ring, they once more lift up the arch and stand motionless. Ahlu, Ahlu, Every link of the circle is broken, and the girls, deeply breathing, stand perfectly still. 
they pant hard and fast a moment or two, and then, just as the deep flush is dying away from their faces, slowly recede all round, thus enlarging the ring. Again the two leaders wave their hands when the rest pause, and now, far apart, stand in the still moonlight like a circle of fairies. Presently, raising a strange chant, they softly sway themselves, gradually quickening the movement, until at length, for a few passionate moments, with throbbing bosoms and glowing cheeks, they abandon themselves to all the spirit of the dance, apparently lost to everything round. But soon subsiding again into the same languid measure as before, they become motionless, and then, reeling forward on all sides, their eyes swimming in their heads, join in one wild chorus and sink into each other's arms. Such is the lorry lorry, I think they call it, the dance of the backsliding girls of Tamai. While it was going on, we had as much as we could do to keep the doctor from rushing forward and seizing a partner. They would give us no more hevars that night, and Rartu fairly dragged us away to a canoe hauled up on the lake shore. When we reluctantly embarked and paddling over to the village, arrived there in time for a good nap before sunrise. The next day the doctor went about trying to hunt up the overnight dancers. He thought to detect them by their late rising, but never was man more mistaken, for on first sallying out the whole village was asleep, waking up in concert about an hour after. But in the course of the day he came across several whom he at once charged with taking part in the hevar. There were some prim-looking fellows standing by, visiting elders from Afrahitu, perhaps, and the girls looked embarrassed, but parried the exchange most skillfully. Though soft as doves, in general, the ladies of Tamai are, nevertheless, flavored with a slight tincture of what we queerly enough call the devil, and they showed it on the present occasion, for when the doctor pressed one rather hard, she all at once turned round upon him, and giving him a box on the ear, told him to Henry Parar be off with himself. Chapter 64. Mysterious. There was a little old man of a most hideous aspect living in Tamai, who, in a coarse mantle of tapa, went about the village dancing and singing and making faces. He followed us about wherever we went, and, when unobserved by others, plucked at our garments, making frightful signs for us to go along with him somewhere and see something. It was in vain that we tried to get rid of him. Kicks and cuffs, even, were at last resorted to. But, though he howled like one possessed, he would not go away, but still haunted us. At last we conjured the natives to rid us of him, but they only laughed. So we were forced to endure the dispensation as well as we could. On the fourth night of our visit, returning home late from paying a few calls through the village, we turned a dark corner of trees, and came full upon our goblin friend, as usual, chattering and motioning with his hands. The doctor, venting a curse, hurried forward. But from some impulse or other, I stood my ground, resolved to find out what this unaccountable object wanted of us. Seeing me pause, he crept close up to me, peered into my face, and then retreated, beckoning me to follow, which I did. In a few moments the village was behind us, and with my guide in advance, I found myself in the shadow of the heights overlooking the farther side of the valley. 
Here my guide paused until I came up with him, when, side by side, and without speaking, we ascended the hill. Presently we came to a wretched hut, barely distinguishable in the shade cast by the neighboring trees. Pushing aside a rude, sliding door, held together with thongs, the goblin signed me to enter. Within it looked dark as pitch, so I gave him to understand that he must strike a light and go in before me. Without replying, he disappeared in the darkness, and after groping about, I heard two sticks rubbing together, and directly saw a spark. A native taper was then lighted, and I stooped and entered. It was a mere kennel. Foul old mats and broken coconut shells and calabashes were strewn about the floor of earth, and overhead I caught glimpses of the stars through chinks in the roof. Here and there the thatch had fallen through and hung down in wisps. I now told him to set about what he was going to do or produce whatever he had to show without delay. Looking round fearfully as if dreading a surprise, he commenced turning over and over the rubbish in one corner. At last he clutched a calabash, stained black, and with a neck broken off. On one side of it was a large hole. Something seemed to be stuffed away in the vessel, and after a deal of poking at the aperture, a musty old pair of sailor trousers was drawn forth, and holding them up eagerly, he inquired how many pieces of tobacco I would give for them. Without replying, I turned away the old man chasing me and shouting as I ran until I gained the village. Here I dodged him and made my way home, resolved never to disclose so inglorious an adventure. To no purpose, the next morning, my comrade besought me to enlighten him. I preserved a mysterious silence. The occurrence served me a good turn, however, so long as we abode in Tamai, for the old clothesman never afterward troubled me but forever haunted the doctor, who, in vain, supplicated heaven to be delivered from him. End of chapters 63 and 64 Recording by Tricia G.